Good morning, at least here in Los Angeles. Good afternoon, good evening, good day, wherever you are. Welcome, welcome, welcome to our workshop. We're going to be looking at forgiveness. And some of you have been here before because this is, I think, our third event with Dr. Luskin. So you know that it's a process. Forgiveness is not an event. It's not a light switch. Oh, I'm going to forgive and I get it done. No, that's probably not how it works. It might even work as hell no, I'm not going to forgive. And then if you're engaged in any type of consciousness practice, an authentic consciousness practice, doesn't matter what it is you'll eventually identify the, your unwillingness and then eventually experience, not just identify, but experience your willingness and eventually experience the results of opening yourself up to the process. And I say it that way because it's like everything else I've ever experienced in human development. Notice I didn't use the word spiritual. In human development, there seems to be some type of connection between willingness and a response from the universe. I'm being vague, yes, intentionally. For those of you who have any resistance to the words spiritual and God or higher power or spirituality, <clears throat> I don't have any aversion to the words but others do and I try to accommodate so that people can possibly have an open mind and an open heart, which is really the point. You've all, well, most of you have seen me do this. From 1988, I was four years sober and I sat down with a man who I wanted to help me to go through the steps. After 45 minutes of my telling him who I was and where I'd been, he said, you've got a lot of information here, but you have very little transformation. You have a lot of academic knowledge, but you have very little change. The knowledge that you have has not been filtered through your heart to your feet, and you don't have an experience, and you have not changed. He quoted Einstein. You know that if you've been around me at all, any length of time, that I love succinct wisdom sayings. They just seem to penetrate my unconsciousness. They seem to penetrate the very thick curtain that holds me in darkness. I don't know that I'm in darkness. I don't know that I don't know. And this man said, quoting Einstein, the consciousness that created the problem cannot be the consciousness that solves the problem. Brilliant. Of course, that's what Bill Wilson knew. My mind cannot fix my mind because my mind is the problem. And any fix that my problem mind comes up with will have problems inherent in it. So I need a new consciousness. 
That's what he called a spiritual awakening. Step 12. If you haven't looked at it that way, I'm, I hope I'm introducing something that will part the curtains a little bit. I'm a 12-step person. My experience with the forgiveness process comes out of the 12-step process. But this workshop is not necessarily going to be geared to the 12 steps. I'm co-facilitating with Fred Luskin, Dr. Fred Luskin, PhD clinical psychologist from Stanford. He's a professor at Stanford. He wrote his doctoral dissertation 30 years ago on forgiveness. Then he converted that doctoral dissertation into a book for people who don't have that kind of scientific background so that we could read it and understand and learn from it called Forgive for Good. And I'll, I'll without any qualification, say it's the second best book I've ever read. You may or may not know me, but that's high praise. I studied to be a Catholic priest for seven years in a monastery. I have a graduate education in philosophy and theology. <clears throat> then when I left the monastery in 1964, I studied psychology because I was going to be a psychologist. I have a graduate education in psychology. I know some stuff. But as I said, I, have, I had a lot of information, but no transformation four years sober. <clears throat> and when I did the steps out of the big book, I had an awakening. That is an experience of change. Radical, radical, radical change. Forever. It changed me forever. A change in the way I think and feel and behave. So I say the big book is the best book I've ever read because it's got a formula in it that's so effective. I've been doing my weekly workshops now for 30 years. Hundreds, thousands of people have gone through the step process and a large percentage have finished the ninth step and everyone who did, everyone who did has had a spiritual awakening, a change in the way they think and feel and behave. That's why I say it's the first best book I've ever read. So saying that Fred Luskin's book, Forgive for Good, is the second best book because it's effective. It has a formula. Fred refers to himself as secular. I refer to myself as spiritual. That's the contrast. He is a scientist. I am not. He believes in <clears throat> human development from a psychological and a scientific standpoint. And I do, of course, but my own experience, I'm not scientifically oriented at all. My <clears throat> personal experience is that it was a spiritual process that changed me. The uncanny thing that I observed when I read Fred's book when it first came out is that the 
process of forgiveness has a dynamic. His uh, secular experience was revealed in a vocabulary that describes the dynamic process from a psychological and scientific standpoint. My vocabulary comes from the 12 steps and the spiritual, but the dynamic underneath both of ours, spiritual and secular, the dynamic, the rhythm of it, the stages of it are identical. When we met 30 years ago, we were on a panel. That's where I first encountered him and his book and his knowledge and his experience. And I said just to him what I just said to you. And he said, yes, the dynamic is the same herb, but the 12-step people have a unique advantage. I said, what's that, Fred? He said, you got God. He says, I, I don't bring God in because I'm a scientist. I'm a psychologist. There's no need for it from the scientific and human development perspective. But it adds an X plus factor to the power of the forgiveness process. I mean, what humility that represents. It's not his viewpoint. It's not his philosophy. But he honors our viewpoint and our philosophy from the 12 step and or the spiritual or religious. I'm very open to any of those words. So this is an invitation for you to open your heart and mind. And you may be willing. I mean, clearly, I think I'm preaching to the choir You've showed up giving up a Saturday to come to this, paying some registration fee to come to this. So it's assumed that you're willing and interested in the process of forgiveness. But the prayer that I'm introducing you to, if you haven't seen it before, and reintroducing to you, if you have seen it before, just to remind you, is for spiritual intervention. I'm not asking God to help me set aside or open my mind. I'm asking a power other than myself, whatever that means to you, to each one of you, a power other than yourself, whether that be God as we don't understand it, or higher power, or good orderly direction, or the force or the source, or the organismic life force, as Dr. Berger would call it. Dr. Berger's my co-facilitator in emotional sobriety. Most of you know our work. <laughs> Whatever that power is that we want to believe in and make an attempt to believe in, we're asking to bring the spiritual crowbar and open our mind and open our hearts. I am willing, but I can't do that. I'm even powerless to have an open mind and open heart. And I want it. It's my intention. And yet I don't know that I don't know. And I can't see that I don't see. And I don't know. And I can't see even that. I mean, I know it for a fact, looking back over my shoulder. 
that I'm incrementally opened up. There are probably 300 curtains in front of me. And over the last 30, 33 years, curtains have been opening up progressively and there's more light. There's more information and there's more experience. And I know there's more curtains. <laughs> so I'm inviting you now to pray out loud if you're, you're all on mute um, or silently to yourself or just holding the thought that you are willing to have and be gifted an open mind and an open heart for this next three hours we'll be together fred will join us sometime in the first hour god please set aside everything that i think i know about myself my unmanageability my path to freedom in you for an open mind and a new experience with myself my unmanageability, my path to freedom, and especially you. So I use the term in the prayer, path to freedom. The topic I've already confirmed is forgiveness, a process. Forgiveness is a process of freedom. Notice there's pathetic Herbie, completely clueless, in the bondage the twofold bondage. Again, I'm coming from the perspective of a 12-step orientation. But it could be just without 12-step, it could be any human development adaptation. The first step says I have a problem with addiction, first half, and I have a problem with unmanageability. If you were paying attention, the set-aside prayer was about both addiction and unmanageability. So those are two very different kinds of bondage. Freedom from the addiction is guaranteed by the first nine steps. I just used a word you might not have heard before if you haven't heard me. Freedom from addiction is guaranteed in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 84. You won't find those words, but here's what you will find. We are placed in a position of neutrality. Hear the grace of that. But also, it's at the end of the ninth step, so it's assumed that you've done an awful lot of work. And it's our work in combination with the grace of, you fill in the blank. That is the combination that frees us from the addiction. But very soon in that page and the next page, 84 and 85, it said, however, we're not cured. My interpretation is not cured of our unmanageability. It says we have a daily reprieve. The first nine steps are the program of recovery. The next three steps, 10, 11, and 12, <clears throat> are the program of living. Steps four through nine are the steps of forgiveness. Step 10 is the tool of emotional sobriety that ensures 
the continuation of the freedom from the bondage of self. Freedom. Look up the word forgiveness if you haven't. That was my first job given to me by my step guide. Look up the term forgiveness. He had me do that after I finished my fourth step. I, I didn't know why. It's not an instruction in the big book or the 12 and 12, but it was his experience. The fourth step is that first step in the forgiveness process. Because if you've done a fourth step, as I have literally out of the big book, with some interpretation and extension of the instructions from the big book, you identify at the end of the fourth and fifth step that you're not a victim ever. Hello, you're not a victim ever. <clears throat> oh, we may have been victimized. That's true in many of our cases. But in terms of our resentment and our fear and our dishonesty <clears throat> and our shame and our guilt and our sexual behavior and our secrets, <clears throat> the entire content of the fourth step, we're not a victim. We're the perpetrator. That's the turnaround. The bondage of self really just means I need to be released. Hear my vocabulary, be released. All right, so I said look up the word <clears throat> forgiveness in a dictionary and it's to release. If I were to add to that, it would be to be released. I was released. I was released, hear that. But it wasn't just a passive act and a gift. That certainly was the grace that was involved, that gift, that free gift. But my willingness to take a lot of action was the key to it. So I'm going to invite you to some action. I hope you have paper and a pen or some type of a writing instrument, or maybe you just do your technology electronically. That's however it, you can do this without distracting yourself from being present to what we're talking about. Why are you here? What is your current suffering? Sure, you're here to learn about forgiveness. Why? Put the name down of one person or one event or one circumstance where you are aware of being unforgiven, that you are unforgiving, <clears throat> or that you are unforgiven. Notice, going out from you or coming into you. What is your current suffering? <clears throat> Life is suffering, says the Buddhist, right? Life is suffering. First noble truth. The second noble truth is suffering comes from attachment. Third noble truth is the antidote for attachment is detachment. The fourth noble truth is 
the Eightfold Path, the path of eliminating suffering, the Eightfold Path, right living, right thinking, right attitude, right work. There's, there's eight different words that they add on to right, meaning correct or healthy. <clears throat> the author of The Road Less Traveled. Very first line became famous. Life is difficult. Yep, The Road Less Traveled especially. But I'm gonna offer you a second question. Well, maybe it's the third question. Why here is a good question. What is your current suffering is the focus question. But now this is a deeper question. What's the source of your suffering? Mm. Your current suffering is smoke. You can identify the smoke because of the suffering, but it's not the source. What's the fire? I couldn't have made those distinctions before I did a thorough fourth step out of the big book. I knew what my resentments were but I didn't know the underlying causes and conditions. I knew what my fear was, but I hadn't gone through an analytical process that revealed the source of my fear, self-reliance. I hadn't really never done an inventory of my <clears throat> sexual behavior. This was the first time I got a glimpse at the full picture of my history, which was embarrassing to me for the very first time seeing the behavior in the history. But the inventory in the big book suggests us nine different questions. The ninth question of which is, what should you have done instead? And from that question, I surfaced principles underneath the underneath the underneath what principles did I have that I was transgressing? What principles didn't I have that would have made me a better human being? Principles. Those of you who are in a 12-step program knows that the 12th step says, in addition to the spiritual awakening, says, practice these principles in all our affairs. Well, what principles? Bill never did take the time to give us a list. He's referring, in a way, to principles as a synonym for the steps. So inherent in each of the steps is an operating human principle. Principles are of reality. This is, and this is mm, the heart of the forgiveness process, is to identify principles of reality, to know that they're immutable. The law of gravity is a principle of physics. It doesn't change, well, in the Earth's atmosphere. The law of gravity is a principle in the earth atmosphere. It's immutable and non-negotiable. Byron Katie in her book, Loving What Is, 
talks about reality. Reality just is. It's not good or bad. Reality, she says, just is. But only 100% of the time. My goodness, that, that's a great platform for us to begin our conversation of forgiveness. One of the participants in my physical workshop when I was doing those just jumped up one day in the midst of the fourth step and said, Herb, Herb. <clears throat> I said, Jason, what's going on? He said, I got it. I got it. What did you get? Goodness, he was all excited. He said, reality is not personal. Don't scoff. Take that into your meditation sometime. Reality is not personal. It'll change your life. Reality just is what it is. And we have a story about it. <clears throat> now, the whole basis of the 12-step <clears throat> process, of course, and probably any authentic spiritual process, and maybe even authentic human development process, is about power. The 12th step says, in the first step, I need help. And in the second step, help's available. It's that simple. Page 53, Bill says, God is or God isn't. What is your choice? It also gives you lots of room in terms of the G-O-D word and says, you choose, you choose. Please hear this. You choose, not your sponsor, not the book, not the religion, not the parents, not the school. You choose what your belief is about power, the help that you need. I mentioned Dr. Berger's term, organismic life force. What brings an acorn to be an oak tree? Fabulous image and a great meditation. Organismic life force. But step two is a choice. Step three is a decision. The difference, you know what? This nuance has come to me only in the last two to three months. And I've been thinking about it for a long time and sharing it with people for a long time. Step two is a choice, but step three is a decision. What's the difference? Well, the decision is for action, to have a relationship with this fill-in-the-blank power. And that relationship is one of alignment. Neither of those words is in the big book. If you want more unpacking of steps two and three, you could go to my website. I have YouTube's uh, Melissa and Rainey mentioned <clears throat> the playlists. There's eight different series on different topics. Some of them the steps, some of them very focused, laser focused on each of the steps in a very deep and broad way. <clears throat> and that will unpack what I mean by relationship, and where you'll find it referred to in the big book, pages 62 and 63. 
not with the word, but with the model. You won't find the word alignment in the big book, but it's my conclusion as to the best word that represents step three, <clears throat> to turn. To turn from what to what? From my self-centeredness, which was the key to unmanageability, page 62. And the key to step three, that turning from self to other. That turning that puts me in alignment with reality. I turn my will and my life over to the God of my understanding. I could say and prefer to say the God of my not understanding. Step three does not say we turn our will and our life over to God. Please be specific when you read step three and pay attention to the word care. What does that mean? Turn my will and my life over to the care. Hugely different. It leaves me, it leaves me with a ton of personal responsibility. God is not the manager of my life. Whatever G-O-D means to you. Nature, perhaps. Reality with a capital R. Power, source, or force. All of those really work really well. <clears throat> Sunlight of the spirit is my most current favorite phrase in the big book. It changes from cycle to cycle, from year to year. But right now, sunlight of the spirit, that antidote to the darkness, that shines light on my story. See, forgiveness is all about my interpretation of reality, my interpretation of my history, my interpretation of who I am, who they are, and how the world works, my interpretation. And I don't know that I don't know, and I can't see that I don't see. And I don't know any of that, even, even though I'm hearing Herb say it, and I hear the words, and I, the words are simple, I understand the words. <clears throat> But many of you right now, well, that's just not my experience because I know some stuff and I've had some experience. All right. That's why that first two questions were so important. Well, three questions. Why am I here? What, what is my current suffering? Those are pretty straightforward. But then the third question, what's the source of my suffering? If you've done some analytical work in the fourth step, you'll be able to answer that question. And if you haven't, you won't. And the high likelihood, if you haven't done the work I'm referring to, you won't even know that you don't know. <laughs> I'm not playing with you. I'm, 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 I'm inviting you to that open mind and that open heart that we talked about right at the beginning. We do need a new pair of glasses. We start out life literally in the womb one of my teachers calls it the core of goodness in us that then gets determined by our genetics. You might have noticed I'm bald. You might have noticed I'm male. You might have noticed I'm white. None of those are my fault. My father was male 
white and bald. He also happened to be an alcoholic. And his father and his father and his father have all of those characteristics, including alcoholism. My conclusion is it's genetic, and there's some science to support that. Our genetics determine our destiny in many, many, many cases. Notice that the, these are a replica of those Russian dolls you see in gift shops. <clears throat> they're, sometimes they're called nesting dolls. I had a Russian lady in my workshop from Russia, and she said, matrushka, meaning mother. Our family culture determines a whole bunch of who we are. Not just the culture of our family, but the culture in which our family is living. You could have people from, from Italy, but they're living in the United States, but they brought the culture of Italy into the United States. And so that will even have a different nuance. Your emotional experiences in school at the various levels of school and exposure to friends and other kinds of experiences, as well as the education that you get from work environment, from social environment, from church environment. Notice though, the facade of the doll is all the same. It all looks like Herb or Sally or Nancy or Bob. And yet these are the various things that have been layered on us, creating the lenses through which we look. My story, look at the top, my story. And the fourth step through the ninth step that process of forgiveness. The fourth step through the ninth step. It begins, with the process of forgiveness, I believe, starts with the fourth step. I'll talk more about that in a minute. And it concludes with the ninth step. I'll talk about that a little bit later. <clears throat> I didn't know any of this when I was doing the work for the first time. In fact, I didn't know any of it until after I finished the work and was continuing to grow spiritually and emotionally. That fifth step was the unpacking of my story. Not an autobiography, although there was some of that. Bill says in the fifth step, we tell someone all our life story, but it was really about the dynamic of my life, the thoughts that I had, the attitudes that I had, the experiences that I had, the emotions that I had or didn't have, the thoughts I expressed, <clears throat> what I really, really believed about myself and other people and life itself. And it was after the fifth step that I was very clear that everything shifted. I went from being a victim of my father and my family, being a victim of my bosses and my environment and my education, to finally, at age 50 years old, taking full responsibility for my life. Oh, all of what I just mentioned was formative and deformative. It is true. But at age 50, 
they're not the problem anymore. Circumstances, events, and people are not the problem. My problem is my reaction to circumstances and events. My problem is my reaction. My problem is 100% my problem. I don't have a part in my resentment. You hear it all the time. Challenge those words. I don't have a part in my resentments. I have a hundred percent. It's my anger held into resentment. It's my reaction to people, circumstances, and events. Although the people, circumstances, and events were very harsh, very tragic, very dysfunctional, sometimes criminal in, our, in some of our cases. It's history. In many cases, ancient history. And I'm living today as if the events are happening today and they're not. It's my imagination and it's my feelings and it's my memory and it's my reaction. That's a transformative. That's the, where the spiritual awakening begins. That's where I begin to take a look at, I've put myself in jail because of the operation of my instincts, fight, flight, and freeze. This is the model I use. Bill Wilson uses it in step four in the 12 and 12. Instincts gone awry. These are scientific, biological instincts for survival. But they create a reaction of anger, fight, flight, fear, freeze, dishonesty. And what I mean by that is camouflage. If I can't fight you and I can't run from you, hunker down. If I have a green environment, turn green. If I have a blue environment, turn blue. If I have a yellow environment, turn yellow. Hiding. I, I, it came out of my sex inventory. It was all about dishonesty. So dishonesty was the major, the macro net over which I could see my freeze reaction, one of which manifested in my sexual behavior. But there was so much other dishonesty in it. My primary response. Some people have a primary response of anger. Others will have a primary response of fear. Others will have a primary response of dishonesty. Each of us has all three, but each of us has a dominant. That dishonesty is about shame from my standpoint. Resentment is anger that's held and refelt, sentire, to feel again and again and again. Fear, that anxiety that plagues our culture today. Dishonesty as expressed in sex and or in a bunch of shame. And I'm talking about unhealthy shame here. In contrast to guilt, guilt is a negative feeling about my behavior. Shame is a negative feeling about my very being. That sense of low self-esteem or even loathing 
I hear that from people. It's not my problem, but I have shame as a primary <clears throat> response to reality. I want to hide, so I lie. But they all come, as Bill said on page 62, from our self-centeredness, not as a bad term, just as an observation of survival. Steps four through nine, name and remove those obstacles. Step four begins, step nine concludes. Step four is not an autobiography. It's an analysis of the underlying causes and condition and the exact nature. Read page 64. Bill was very clear, at least with the use of the words, if not the application. And step nine is about removing the clouds in us to the sunlight of the spirit in us. That's why I love that image. It's so graphic in terms of steps four through nine. The sunlight of the spirit is deep down inside of me. No matter how you interpret that steps two and three, sunlight of the spirit, my human nature, my higher self, my true self, psychologists and Buddhists and uh, scientists, it doesn't matter what word you use. We're talking about that life force in us, available to us, is blocked by us, because of our dysfunctional reaction to life around us. And we need to identify and remove those obstacles to turn to be in alignment with life. Such a wonderful, simple phrase. Life as it manifests. Principles as they manifest. I do not have any control. The magic of the serenity prayer is I do not have any control. I have no control. I have influence. Lose the word control. Lose it. I don't control anything outside of me. I don't control anything inside of me. I have influence. But even that's modest, isn't it? So column three is the beginning of my experience with forgiveness. And Fred will be talking about beliefs and shoulds. Who am I? My self-esteem, not psychological self-esteem. Bill means, I'll use a fancy word, that existential self-esteem. Who do I really believe that I am? Not feel, not low self-esteem, high self-esteem, but this belief I have that I'm worthy. This deep belief that people should respect me. Anytime you use the word should, it will signal to you what you believe. It's a great technique to determine and elevate and make visible what you believe about yourself should, or about life, or about others. Life should, I should, you should. It tells you what your model, what your litmus test is of yourself, your litmus test of other people, and even of life itself. Life should be fair. Really? Where did you get that? Life should be fair. I should be treated with respect. Other people should be trustworthy. 
where do we get the story? And when we examine it, we see, as Katie Byron said, with those questions that she asked, loving what is, loving what is, reality should. By whose standards? Who told you the story? It's make-believe. There are principles. We get to sort those out. What are they? When a deer comes down to the lake to get a drink of water, it's wonderful for the deer. When the mountain lion comes up behind the deer and eats the deer, it's very bad for the deer, but it's very good for the mountain lion. I'm not a relativist in sense of moral code, but I'm giving an example of get a perspective on reality. And when you have a deep resentment, Bill says, you need to remove it by identifying your deep resentment. Not all my resentments. I had probably the first time I went through step four resentment inventory, I probably had 80 resentments. Some of them are white shark and some of them were minnows. This man asked me to identify the white shark, the 2,500 ton killers like my father, my bosses to identify them. And then the big book suggests that we pray because we're powerless. But, but please look at pages 66 and 67. It does not say we pray for them. It says we pray for ourselves. We pray for healing. We pray for the divine surgeon to enter into our soul and surgically remove the cancer in us that is that resentment. I cannot remove it. I can identify it. I can write about it. I can analyze it. I can understand it. And I can talk about it. I can make amends around it if there's harm done. I just can't remove it necessarily. So Bill says we pray for healing. We pray for, that's my word. We pray for the removal of the deep resentment. Because we want to be free of it. If you have a resentment and you don't want it, follow the prayer practice that's in pages 66 and 67. If you want help, go to my way of life document. It's on my website, right in between column three and column four of the resentment inventory. It's a sample prayer with the words that come from the words in the big book with some added features from my own experience. I don't have any deep resentments. They were removed in 1989 and they've never returned. I don't have any resentments since I did my last work on resentments in 2008. I had some that had come up and I had been lazy and not paying attention. And once I sat down and did a laser focus column three and column four and did steps four through nine on those two or three deep resentments on people that I was encountering, <clears throat> then that was removed and they've never returned. I have irritations, of course, like we all do, and annoyances occasionally, but nothing, of, nothing that, that destabilizes my serenity anymore. Because I did the column four. There isn't a column four in the big book. But this man that I went through the steps with 
used the term column four for the final instructions on page 67, that second paragraph. There's five questions about my self-centeredness. What am I thinking? What am I doing? What is my fear? Where am I being dishonest? What is my role? Notice I didn't put what is my part. Nope, that's not what the big book says. That word part is not in the big book. What is my role? I like the term responsibility. What is my responsibility? I'm 100% responsible. Then we get to the A step, and there's lots of misinformation around the eight step. People seem to interpret that if I have a resentment, I've created harm. The man who took me through the steps was able to help me correct my misperception. He said, Herb, you're not that powerful and you're not that important. Who did you diminish? That was a word that's not in the big book. Who did I harm? Who did I diminish? Financially, physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. Those words are in the 12 and 12. Those various dimensions where we might harm other people. Yes, we take a look at what we did, but what we did isn't the harm. Please hear that. Now, I'm challenging every one of you. When somebody asks you what's the harm done, don't tell them what you did. That's not the harm. It might have led to the harm. But the harm is really, what was the negative impact of what you did on them? How was their life diminished by you? How was their life reduced, diminished, lacking in quality, the negative impact of you being in their life? What was the harm they received? And then take a look at, well, so now how do you repair that damage? We can't change history, but we can address it. We can regret it. The big book is very clear. Just don't say sorry. We've been doing that all our lives. I use the term regret a lot. And then ask yourself, are you willing? See, this is now bringing the conclusion to the forgiveness process. Is I'm going to repair the damage. Amend means two things. Amend means I'm going to change if, I'm, <clears throat> if I've created mischief from my infidelity. I'm not going to make amends for my infidelity until I stop my infidelity, or at least I'm making an effort to. Otherwise, I'm a hypocrite. It has no meaning. There's no authenticity to it. Step six and seven were incredibly powerful. One of the more powerful experiences I had, distinguishing between my character defect, the inclination, and the behavior that came out of it. I am powerless over the inclination, the instinct, but I am 100% responsible for the behavior that manifests as a result of that instinct and inclination. I pray to be changed with regard to the inclination. 
I hold myself accountable for the behavior and the one-two punch of prayer and accountability removed the behavior within 24 hours, my personal experience, and removed the inclination after about two years. If you want to change, identify specifically what change you want. What's the source of the irritation, the inclination, the instinct? And how is it manifest in behavior? Pray each day specifically for its removal. It's not in the big book. It's my experience. Pray specifically for the removal of the inclination and the change in behavior, but then hold yourself accountable either daily or weekly or monthly, depending on the severity of the character defect. Hold yourself accountable daily, weekly, or monthly to someone specifically and transparently for what you're doing. You will be changed unless you stop praying and holding yourself accountable. How free do you want to be? Which brings us to the final phase of the forgiveness process is you meet with or you talk with or you write to people who you got approval, literally, from your step guide or your sponsor, that that's the approach to the amends process. You describe the harm that you've done. And then you go quiet after asking the question, is there anything else that I didn't mention that I want that uh, that you that you want to mention that you want to mention. I have a YouTube discussion about steps eight and nine. I have a YouTube discussion about forgiveness, including steps eight and nine. Um, and so you can find those if you want some additional description. Each of them is over two hours, maybe three hours. <clears throat> so obviously it's broader and deeper than I'm going right now. And then suggest the amends to repair the damage. If I borrowed $20,000, I'm going to pay back $20,000. I'm willing to. If they ask for compounded interest, I'm going to pay the money back with interest. It's about repairing the damage. Money is the easiest part. How do you repair the damage of infidelity? How do you repair the damage of emotional abuse? How do you repair the damage in your history? How you diminished the people closest to you, but also many other people. Each one, there's no cookie cutter here. Each one needs to be reviewed in prayer and with guidance of an experienced person. And then that final question, like number two, is there anything else that would balance the scale of justice? I keep in mind the model of Lady Justice, blind Lady Justice with the scale. What will balance the scale? I got that from Chuck C's book, New Pair of Glasses. Is there anything else that you would like me to do to make things right? You don't necessarily have to follow their suggestion because there's lots of people that are not balanced emotionally or mentally, but you have, it's wonderful to ask them to hear it 
and then to pause and talk about it with an experienced person if you have any doubt about it. What we're looking at is bondage of self. Addiction's an issue that's been resolved through the completion of the ninth step. At some point, you are given the grace of freedom, placed in a position of neutrality. Now we're addressing unmanageability, that self-will, extreme example of self-will run riot. And Bill says on page 62, we can't even reduce it much by wishing or trying on our own power. We're as powerless over our unmanageability as we are over our addiction. That's the translation. We can't even reduce it much by wishing or trying on our own power. It's the same phrase in a different context on page 43. There'll come a time and a place we'll have no mental defense against the first drink. In regard to our addiction, page 43, with regard to our unmanageability, page 62, powerless, meaning we don't have sufficient effective human power. This is, of course, the assumption underneath the 12-step process, that spiritual process that process of being in alignment with life, being in alignment with myself, being in alignment with other people, because I want to be free. Now, now take a look at the cartoon. There's no walls. There's no ceiling. There's no floor. There's just pathetic Herbie holding the bars in front of his face, not realizing that He's holding the bars in front of his face, and all he has to do is identify that he's holding the bars in front of his face and drop the bars. To release and to be released. Forgiveness is a process. It's a decision to release them and to be released. That's the heart of the matter. It's more complicated, of course. But there's a lot of confusion and ignorance, meaning not knowing, around forgiveness. You can read the words. It's not to condone or forget or tolerate. It's not even to reconcile. You don't need to reconcile and, and have a relationship with people that you don't want to have a relationship with. But we are suggesting as a process that you develop Forgiveness meaning releasing them, which is not to retaliate or exact revenge or seek compensation or judge. It's a decision to release them. Look at my hand. Forgiveness, a decision to release. That's such a great image. I got it when I looked up the word in the dictionary. A decision to release. That gives me the real sense of the flow of it. Open my heart and open my mind and be willing to be willing. And the paradox is once we release them, we are released. That's the paradox that's captured in the Lord's Prayer, written 2,000 years ago, or in the St. Francis Prayer, written 200 years ago. To the extent that we release them from their debts, we are released from our debts. To the extent that we forgive them, we are forgiven, respectively. The Lord's Prayer and the St. Francis Prayer. Centuries apart, two different cultures, 
But of course, the dynamic is the same because it's a human dynamic. This is Fred Luskin's process, and you'll see how it corresponds to the process I've just outlined from the 12 steps. That first stage is to name it. What is your hurt? To understand it, what was the hope that you had that was dashed as the result of your relationship with the circumstances or the event or the people that betrayed you or hurt you? What were the rules? Fred has a great phrase. He calls it unenforceable rules. In the big book, we would look at them as beliefs and shoulds. Those words aren't in there, but those are the words I use for the third column. As you heard me give you a quick summary of it. What are my beliefs and shoulds? Those are the lenses through which I look. I can't see the lenses through which I'm looking because the lenses are that through which I am looking. It's a bit tricky. But what it says is I need to regrind my lenses or I need a new pair of glasses. I need a reframing of my story. I need to challenge my beliefs to see mine were delusional, embarrassingly so. To acknowledge reality as it is. What are my attitudes and motives? Fourth column. What is that which drives me? Motives coming from the Latin word movere. What moves me? Selfishness, self-centeredness were the five questions that were asked that I reviewed in the fourth column a little earlier. Bill says selfishness, self-centeredness is the root. Of course, the fruit of the root is my resentment. I'm not getting what I wanted because I believe I'm entitled and I'm special and I'm unique and I'm not. Oh, as an individual, I am unique, but I, I am not the center of the universe. I'm the center of my universe. Quite different attitude. I was able to see that I am responsible for my thoughts, my feelings, and especially my behavior. To accept reality as it is, and that my decisions all have consequences. My decisions to take action all have consequences, and the consequences are my responsibility. If I don't like the consequences, then change uh, my behavior. If I don't like my behavior, then check my attitude, my feelings, my thoughts, my emotions, my reactions. And, of course, correct. That's the 10th step. I believe it's the tool of emotional sobriety. I get, I have the opportunity when disturbed to course correct. To change, amend, to become faithful, to repair the damage, to have a lifetime of dedication to making her life more comfortable, not in a codependency way, but in a healthy way. Not necessarily talking about it, but living it.
How free do you want to be? That's really the question behind forgiveness. How free do you want to be? All right. Um, Fred is with us. All right. Thank you, Fred. Hello, everyone. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And um, <laughs> I don't know when you came and, and on. I introduced you fairly extensively at the beginning, knowing that you would not be here for a while. And so you're welcome to just pick it up where you want. Um, I've given yeah. them a review of steps four through nine in terms of the tools for I, I was watching some of what you did. So All right. Excellent. Um, hello, everyone. I'm a, I'm a forgiveness teacher in part from Stanford. I know some of you have heard me talk before. Um, you know, I, I've watched the, the few times I've done this, what her presents and um, yeah, I don't think there's much difference in approach. Um, my work has been uh, empirical. I mean, we've done some research on it. I'm a licensed therapist. Um, my spirituality may be more diffuse, but um, I think we're barking up the same tree, you know, yeah, so, it yeah. is my guess. Um, but what I told Herb I would come on and talk about today um, for a period of time is like the practical aspect of it. The, the flat out necessity, and I know this is not at variance with 12 step programs at all. <clears throat> but the flat out necessity to do the work. And I mean, I get invited to all sorts of places and I, I don't know how to, you know, I, 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 I've done a lot of talks in a lot of places. Um, this is a, uh, this is a decision as Herb has said, and in fact, the research suggests that there are two parts to forgiveness, one being decisional, the second being what, what that researcher calls emotional, which means you bring it down into your body. But the first part is you make a decision. And, and that's, not, that's not easy and it's not trivial, but it's a decision. The part that most interests, not most interests, but I told Herb that I would come back um, and talk about is the effort part, the practice part, the, um, how would I put it? The fact that like you don't change unless you make an effort to change and you do practices to sustain that change. As a psychologist, that's probably my primary interest is like, how do you get folks to get off their duff and do something? I mean, in the, I'm gonna say in the most unflattering kind of um, language that I can have, that's it. One of, one of the things that 
again, I know Herb and I share this because I heard him say, you know, you choose what you do, you take the responsibilities. And if you want to change your future, you change your present. I mean, that that's kind of my, but the piece that is hard for people is to recognize that when you choose to stay the same and not change, you're actively choosing, even though you have a huge habit behind you. That we tend to, I mean, you know, that old a body at rest, well, tends to remain at rest unless acted upon by an outside force. We tend, it's really hard for human beings to change and grow. And, and we don't do it easily, and we often don't do it without resistance. But the piece that's needed to understand is when you continue acting the same way, you're choosing to. Um, it's, it's not so simple because you have a huge amount of momentum around your choice. I mean, a huge amount of momentum because um, you've done it the same way so many times. But with forgiveness, we have to make that decisional thing that my life will be better if I stop ruminating and blaming. And then I have to do the work. And, and, and I, I, I don't come at this in the same way as the 12-step program. I, what I mean by do the work is practice. That's what I mean, is practice. Practice whatever it is that you need to do differently. Practice. So if you need to think differently, you practice thinking differently. If you need to act differently, you practice acting differently. If you need to feel differently, you practice feeling differently. You have to practice. And, and that takes a lot of the unfortunately, the bullshit blame away. Because then it becomes a question of what am I willing to practice and how much am I willing to practice and how meaningful is my practice. It also means that it doesn't happen in an hour. You got the decision and then you got the practice. The, the startling gap that we found with forgiveness was when the decision really takes hold, you start to see your setbacks as part of the decision. Before the decision really takes hold, you see your setbacks as affirming the way you were in the past. So if, if you or I were really upset because of the way our ex treated us and we make a decision, I'm gonna forgive the schmuck. So, the, you know, which I've had people tell me as an example of forgiveness and I've chuckled a little bit and said, well, you may have a little room to go in your in your forgiveness. I've had people tell me they've forgiven the asshole and the jerk and the piece of shit. <laughs> and, and, and I 
I tried to hint back at them, well, maybe that um, decision doesn't go as deep as you might like, because it, it, it does indicate the choice of words, some room <laughs> to, to maneuver. But let's say you've decided to forgive the shithead. And then the next week, the shithead shows up late for the kids. And you get upset at the shithead. And before the decision really has taken impact, your being upset proves to you the guy's really a shithead. When the decision has really taken hold, it's, wow, I have more work to do. And that's the fulcrum for all of this. It's how deep is your decision. So I'm sure the same thing has to do with not drinking or using substances. You know, when your decision is doesn't really mean anything, you just go back to the same excuses. When the decision has some legs, it's, wow, okay. This is showing me there's still room for growth. I have stuff to learn, whatever it is. The, the, the setback becomes part of the process. But with forgiveness, the key piece is I decide that I don't want to blame something else for my life. That's what it is. Like, I don't want to, it, it's not helpful to me to continue to blame something or the past or someone else for the current state of my life. When you make the decision to forgive, because you figure, you get to understand that that's the only way that I have a chance to get my life back, is to decouple my blame from my life. I still have my crappy life, but at least now it's my responsibility. And that's a huge difference. I mean, just huge. I still have my crappy life, but it's mine, rather than partly theirs. I got the same crappy life. Deciding to forgive doesn't make your life great. It just takes away one of the biggest obstacles for keeping it crappy. And that's huge. But the key piece is how deep is your decision. And as you know, any of you know, having worked in any way with, um, you know, addictions, nobody ends an addiction on the first shot. Maybe not nobody, but very, very few people. I think when I was still part of that world, I mean, the average number of relapses was in the 20s. And that's not big relapses, but that's just how many times it makes making that decision before it actually means anything. 
And then you get to a point where you made the decision and there isn't any turning back. But the way that the decision manifests is through practice, which is why these 12 step programs are so good because they force you to practice. They force you to do something. And, and I really, I just, like, there's no, like, kumbaya shortcut. You know, like, okay, we've all decided to forgive, and now everything's good, and peace, love, and granola will rule the universe and stuff like that. That simply ain't true. We make the decision, and now we have to do the practice. But it's practice. And the thing that humans do not understand, because we don't want to, is the recognition that we're always practicing. So when we say it's really hard to change, we're speaking flat out truth. I mean, it's really hard to change. But one of the reasons it's really hard to change is that we keep on practicing the same old stuff. And when you keep on practicing unforgiveness, no matter what you say your decision is, you're making it harder. So, when you decide to forgive your ex, unfortunately, if the decision is real, you can't call him shithead anymore. You can, but it means that you're violating your decision. He may still be a shithead, but you've decided to get off the shithead mobile because it's to save you. So then you have to practice changing your vocabulary towards him. So you can go from shithead, you can try to lower that a little bit to piece of shit. You know what I mean? Just notch it down a half an inch because he's not a complete shithead. He's just a piece of shit. And then you can notch that down to asshole and then jerk. And then after a while, you start to recognize that all you're doing by saying nasty things about him is polluting your own stream. That's all you're doing. But it's what you're practicing. So practice means that that's how you know you've made a decision. I mean, you can, we can decide all sorts of things. It just doesn't. It doesn't mean anything until we really practice. And, and the, the practice of forgiveness, I believe is what frees us. And I don't think it matters. Um, I, don't think it I don't think it matters that much 
what practices one does. I mean, I'm not somebody who's just so enamored with my own whatever that these are the, you know, that guy, oh my God, you do mine or you do nothing. I don't buy that at all. The decision matters and then the practice matters. You got to do both. But there are some really great Buddhists out there who forgive. And there are some really great people who don't believe in anything but forgive. So none of our methods is in and of itself better necessarily. I mean, some have better data behind them. So like I went to, um, I gave a talk once, I think North Carolina, and this was 20 years ago. And again, I was giving a talk on forgiveness and I was in a semi-small town in um, North Carolina. And, and somebody there, were, they were talking about how like they're in the buckle of the Bible Belt. And I had been somewhere else that had also said that they were in the buckle of the Bible Belt. So I figured it's a big buckle. But um, no, somebody like in Tennessee had said that, but they were really trying to impress me. And then one, um, one woman said, oh, this is great, you know, this forgiveness stuff, because all I would do to forgive, you know, being here in the Bible Belt was say, Satan, get thee behind me. And didn't work very well. I mean, you know, it just wasn't that effective. Now, are there people who have forgiven by saying, Satan, get thee behind me? I'm sure there are. I'm certain of it. But if you gave 100 people that instruction compared to maybe the 12-step programs or my program, you'd probably get more people successful from these programs than from saying, Satan, get thee behind me. But if you're a firm believer in Satan, get thee behind me, it works. As long as you practice. And that's critical. You have to practice. No matter what it is, you have to practice. So for us, in our forgiveness work, we have, I'm going to say, four primary practices. And I think Herb went through most of them, but I want to emphasize to you, it's practice. Practice, 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 practice. So one of the practices is calm down. Like when you're upset about your ex or whatever, Chill. Seriously, chill. Take a deep breath. Take a walk. Remember you're loved. Whatever positive thing you can do to help you chill, lower your blood pressure. And I, I'm being partly facetious and partly just flat out accurate. You gotta chill when you're upset if you wanna grow through things. 
You have to chill when you're upset. Otherwise, you will not heal. So you can say, Satan, get thee behind me if that helps you chill. Uh, I'm not minim minimizing this. I mean, there are better psychophysiologic methods of meditation and prayer, maybe, that work. But Satan's good. You just got to do something every time. And it doesn't have to take long, but you got to do it. That's the thing. You got to make it a practice. So let me let me just do a moment meditation um, on that. Not on Satan, get thee behind me because I'm not trained to do that. But I, I really am a believer in all sorts of diverse practices. I mean that I am a firm believer in this is a big wiggly world. And there are so many ways that people in this big wiggly world have figured out the same thing. So if you would all just take a moment and close your eyes. And give yourself, please, permission to relax. And there is a cognitive element in all relaxation. All. You have to clear the decks, which is why it often doesn't work, is because we don't actually clear the deck. And then take maybe two or three slow breaths into and out of your abdomen. And when you inhale, make sure your abdomen expands. And then just bring an image to your mind of someone you love. These are universal, simple practices, but just bring an image to your mind of someone you love. And that's sufficient. Take one more breath. Let go of the image and the feeling. 
and just gently allow your eyes to open. So what I'm suggesting is, and we have demonstrated that has tremendous value. When you feel like calling somebody a shithead, take a couple of breaths and remember love. And do that as a practice. If you wanna forgive, if you wanna heal yourself, if you want to stay angry or if you want to stay in the role of victim, don't do this. No, really, it'll ruin your, you know, if you want to stay a pissed off victim, do not do this. Should have a big warning on the cover. But when you recognize that your arousal is your problem. It's not their problem. It's not the past problem. It's your problem. You're upset. You're the only one who can soothe you. Because you don't want to be soothed or don't know how to be soothed, you have a grudge. It's the past fault. It's my mother's fault for not loving me enough when I was nine, even though I'm 70. <laughs> like sometimes I hear people say this stuff and I wonder <laughs> if they're not testing my sense of humor. Honestly, I have senior citizens tell me it's their mother's fault. I'm thinking, where do they get this garbage from? And it might have been true when they were 20. But at some point, and this is, I'm sure Herman, I agree 100%. It's your life. Good, better, and different. It's your life. And you can ruin any moment of it by blaming anybody you want at any time for anything. You have that complete freedom to blame, to ruin any moment of your day that you choose. Anytime. You can ruin the best moment of your life. You could ruin your marriage. You could ruin your kid's graduation. You could ruin getting a Nobel Prize if you wanted to by holding a grudge. It's your freedom. Nobody can take that from you. And most of us have practiced it to the hilt. It's not my fault I came out such a, um, you know, whatever. My mother's fault, it's my father's fault, it's grandma's fault, it's my drinking's fault, it's my ex's fault. My kids don't call me enough fault, whatever it is. So when you forgive, it just becomes your life. That's all you're doing. You're removing the prop of blame and victimhood from your defenses. So one of the prime ways of doing that is when you're upset, relax. 
Let me practice that same thing once again, but a little more real time, okay? So again, please close your eyes. And what I'd like you to do is picture something in your life that um, you don't like, that you haven't forgiven. Picture something in your life that you haven't forgiven. Picture something. Feel it for a moment. Feel the tension, the negativity, whatever it is. Just feel it for a moment and recognize its familiarity. And then once that's clear, bring your attention to your belly and take two slow deep breaths into and out of that belly. Two slow deep breaths. And then when you've taken those two slow deep breaths, picture something or someone that you dearly love. And that's enough. And then just let that go, take a breath, return, and very gently open your eyes. Now, if you will practice that, that 45 seconds, which you can shrink down to about 10 seconds with practice. No, I'm serious. It doesn't have to be a big practice because once you've taught your nervous system how to do it, it doesn't take that much effort. But you have to practice. You have to practice training your nervous system so that it recognizes the stimulus of safety, not threat. Safety, not threat. You're safe when you're breathing into and out of your belly and remembering love. When you're remembering how somebody didn't love you or lied to you or cheated to you or whatever, you're remembering threat. And so you're all, all, all upset. And every human responds badly to threat. And so you want to shift out of threat.
in part, I'm going to say, because you're worth it. It's a, it's a form of self-care. But you have to practice. Like, that's the tough part. And before you've made the decision to really forgive, when you feel threatened because you remember your ex, you'll think, wow, okay, I'm remembering ex and I don't like it. They really are a terrible person. And so you'll have another reason to not like them. Only when you've decided that you don't want that in you, will you practice. You'll practice. And you'll practice calming yourself down. And you'll practice releasing the grudge for that moment. Because that's all you can release it for, is that moment. You can release it for that moment. But when you release it for this moment, and then the moment that occurs an hour from now, and then the moment tomorrow, and then the moment the next day, when you practice, you've practiced setting the condition so your brain can forgive. But you have to practice. Another practice, very simple, is when you find yourself telling your friends what shithead has done. Instead of using the word shithead, say, somebody who hurt me that I haven't forgiven. And if you do that 50 times, you'll have a huge change. Because every time you say shithead, you're defending your reaction. It's because they're this, that you're that. It's very subtle. It's very persistent. And it's very dangerous for your well-being. One of, the, one of the things that, um, that we found is that, um, well, not just us, but researchers have found that the more blame you have, it tends to um, manifest as physical illness. That blame itself is a physically destructive quality because it's both angry and helpless, which are not good combinations for your being. So whenever you practice blame or practice victimhood,
you're practicing helplessness. And of course that has an impact. Of course. So you have to practice something healthier for you. You're not necessarily immediately practicing forgiveness, but you're practicing self-care that's healthier for you. But over time, that self-care matters. It really does matter. So my thinking is that we have to work at this. Like it's not, it's not, how would I say? It's not, um, it's not something that comes just because you're, um, just because you choose to or decide to. You have to do things. You have to change your thinking, feeling, behaving, um, way you self-regulate. You have to do something regularly that will change you. So the easiest is, um, you know, change your um, physiology through relaxation. The hardest is actually forgiving. So there's lots of spaces in between there for practice. The easiest is just calm down. Like just relax. Like the world is okay. You don't have to remember again that in 1996, somebody lied to you. You're not of any value to this world by doing that. You're offering nothing useful, nothing useful whatsoever. That's the funny part. We think we're contributing to world peace by like remembering how much hatred we have. We want to congratulate ourselves by saying, oh yeah, we're really taking a stand against evil. Look at us. We are really important people, which is idiotic. We're not doing anything of value whatsoever, except maybe raising our blood pressure and reminding ourselves that we're not safe. If you think those are great contributions to the world, go ahead. Calm down's the first and easiest. Just calm down. When you're upset, calm down. 
quiet down, take a breath. The second is watch your language. What are you calling them? How do you relate to the experience? How do you even relate to yourself? Watch your language. Do you curse? Do you blame? Do you bitch all the time about something? The hard news is that's all on you. All of it. No matter what somebody else did in the past, except for like if it's two weeks later when it is absolutely legitimate and helpful to bitch like crazy. It's in fact a sign of mental health. Victimhood is an essential part of healing. It's not my fault, they're terrible people. That truth needs to be lived too. It just only needs to be lived at the right time and for the right amount of time. But it is essential for your brain's ability to handle these kind of things. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross might refer to that as, you know, her part of the, the process, which is you have denial and you have depression and you have anger, all the ways that your brain needs to reorganize to handle what happened. So it is not trivial and it is not a bad thing to feel terribly victimized for a while. The normal course of grieving, it goes away and you become back to health. When during grief, you don't go through the process well, that's where grudge comes from. You get stuck in one of these ineffective but necessary strategies. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says clearly that it's essential to go through some pain when you're hurt. Seriously, it's essential. Forgiveness means it's also essential to get out of it. It's essential, both. But we don't necessarily relate so well to the parts that we have to practice to move on. So one is quiet yourself down. Two, is watch some of those words you use when you describe other human beings and recognize that you can't call somebody an asshole without raising your blood pressure. You can't do it. 
So you then recognize that you're choosing to raise your blood pressure because you think what they did is so bad that you're willing to suffer for it endlessly. Take, I mean, look at what this is. It's a form of like communal insanity. That I'm willing to ruin my day because something or someone was awful in the past and it is absolutely essential to deal with that awfulness and it's absolutely essential to move past it. But it doesn't mean that there's like, um, like you're a bad person or you've done something wrong by being upset. I believe being upset is part of your brain's need to return to homeostasis. You can't get there otherwise. And it's like you, you're putting yourself in a washing machine when somebody shakes up your world. You know, you're being shaken, really shaken. And it's not easy. And don't, don't kid yourself that it's easy. But grief is essential. If you carry some bad habits from grief forward, only practice after decision will make them go away. Decisions, not enough. Good intentions, not enough. Awareness is not enough. It's a real decision and practice. So again, one is calm down. Two is watch your speech. Do you have friends that you like to get together and discuss how the assholes in your life are? You're not gonna heal that way. If you don't have a friend for the year after somebody does something terrible to you to discuss how the assholes are, you may not hear either. That's the conundrum of this. You need it for a while and then you need to stop. That's what makes this so challenging. You do need it. And then you need to stop. And, and that is no easy thing. You know, I've been teaching this stuff for a long time. And I'm sure Herb's been doing what he does for a long time. And we both practice whatever we believe in on ourselves. So we know it's not easy. This is not a, you know, let's everybody get together. And like I worked in a kind of new agey graduate school for a while to train therapists. And I remember there was a time when they had a lot of like really young new agey people wanting to be therapists and they'd write out treatment plans for people with mental illness. Well, if they meditate twice a day or they do some um, creative expression, like they'll heal. And that's all wish fulfillment. 
It's nonsense. And it's not creative expression and meditation are wonderful. But you have to practice in your life. You have to make certain decisions in your life that you're going to change things about you. The third practice, so simple, is the alternative to forgiveness is gratitude. That's, all, that's what you got is the polls. You either argue with life or you say thank you. You either say, this experience is bad, so I'm going to argue with it. Or you say, this experience is good, and thank you. Or maybe this experience is just neutral. But you got unforgiveness, and you got thank you. Right? It's not that complicated. But we like to confuse ourselves by making believe again we're in great service to the goodness of this world by finding things wrong with this world. And we think that's one of our gifts. And so arguing and arguing and fighting and complaining, that's all fine but the practice is to be more grateful. So you balance out the arguing. You can't stop the arguing, you need it. I don't mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not saying you need to argue, but everyone will have things in their life to argue about. You also need lots of things in your life to say thank you to. And you need to cultivate that if you want to become more forgiving. Otherwise, the shit in the world is too apparent. It is. You got to work to balance it. And you, you, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying anything that you haven't heard multiple times before. But if you wake up in the morning and you think, poor me, I had crappy parents. Well, that's starting yourself off for a bad day. Especially since there's nothing your parents can do anymore to help you. That's on you or your ex-partner who's now happy with the person half their age. There ain't nothing that they can do for you now that's going to make it better for you. You have to do it. So one of the ways that we can do this is the words thank you. So again, you wake up in the morning. I had my, my parents didn't treat me right. 
but you also notice that it's beautiful outside. So now you got a choice. Did I have crappy parents or was it beautiful outside? What kind of day do I want? Do I ever want to forgive those crappy parents or do I want to just remind myself every day how crappy my parents were? That's my choice. It's not, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, what I, I want to be very clear is I'm not saying that people didn't have crappy parents. But I am saying when you wake up today, you have a choice. Do I focus on my crappy parents? Do I focus on it's a beautiful day? And if we give, this is the key piece. This is the whole essence of forgiveness and unforgiveness. If we give those crappy parents the power to ruin our morning, it's not their fault. That's the whole teaching. If we give our crappy parents or crappy ex or a crappy country or a crappy president, whatever it is we wanna give the power to ruin our day, that's not their fault. We're choosing that attention. That's the, the simplest decision point that we have. When I wake up during the day, how much time do I say, I had crappy parents, you can't expect me to be an adult. My dad was an alcoholic, I can't function. You can say that and ruin your life, but it's not their fault. That's the thing. Nobody's saying that having a crappy alcoholic father is a good way to grow up. Nobody. It's just that how long do you give yourself that excuse for not functioning? I mean, this is not a defense of crappy fathers or crappy mothers, or crappy exes, or crappy bosses, or even crappy cultures. It's no defense of that. Which is why I believe grief includes really seeing how crappy things can be so you can do something about it. But blaming those crappy things for why you have a crappy life, that's not so smart. So it's easier to add gratitude than it is to try to redeem crappy people. So if you woke up this morning and you had a bed to sleep on and running water and food in the refrigerator, it's not so bad. You may still have had a crappy dad. But what do you pay attention to? Do you blame your crappy dad for the fact that you can't appreciate the fact that you have running water, food, and clothing? That's fine. 
There's a lot of dead people who still up, stop other people from appreciating their lives. But the gratitude piece is essential. That and our speech and our self-regulation, we have entire control over. Not entire, say 80%. So let me, let me do a couple of simple gratitude meditations. Very simple. If you'd all please, again, just close your eyes. Short practices, as you see. Just please allow your eyes to close. And just take again a couple of slow breaths. And when you inhale, have your abdomen get bigger. I can't overemphasize how important that is for making you safe. When you inhale, have your abdomen expand. When you exhale, have your abdomen contract. And then maybe after two or three breaths with the next inhalation, just say thank you for the fact that you're alive and breathing. Say thank you inside of you, just thank you. and try to feel thank you. Try to feel it as you think it for being alive and breathing. Thank you. And then almost try to fill your heart with thank you for all that being alive brings. Like you, you can love and you can walk and you can eat and you can talk. What, what tremendous like, gifts. I mean, it just, just pay attention. And then just again, take a breath and let that go. Very gently let the feeling and thought go. And just allow your eyes to open.
So if you want to put your life in perspective so that you're more likely to forgive, look for things to be thankful for. The simplest is that you're here and alive for a while and that you can guarantee in a certain number of years you won't be. Like you can bring that to the bank. So you wanna at some level ask yourself, how much do I want the past to interfere with my ability to experience my present? How much am I willing to sacrifice of my opportunities to have a decent life now by focusing on what went wrong in the past? It's really hard to argue that out, but it's not as hard to say thank you with what you have and let that start to balance it. Thank you. The other piece of that is the practice of teaching yourself to find good in what other people do. So if you if you're, have a life partner and they do the dishes or they get the gas or they help with the kids, it's a really good idea to remind yourself to say thank you. Very, very simple practice, but it helps you have less grudges. So I know you don't do X, Y, and Z. I know that, but you do A, B, and C. And I wanna make sure that I see A, B, and C so I don't exaggerate X, Y, and Z. That's what's quote crucial about our whole lives. So imagine if at a simple thing, we recognize that maybe we've been with somebody for 10 years and for 10 years they've listened to us, our garbage and they still somehow show up even though we are so full of crap and so annoying, just as they are. I mean, it's not like it's a one-way street, but we are really difficult and annoying and they show up for 10 years and somehow come back for more, almost like a dog, you know, that doesn't mind being mistreated. It's nice to say thank you, but not just say it, feel it. You don't have to show up. I'm awful. I mean, you're awful too. I mean, it's not, it's not me worse, but we're all crazy. Everybody, we're all crazy. So you show up somehow and put up with my particular kind of crazy. Thank you. You have a lot of your own crazy, but thank you. So that opens the heart up to be able to hold some of their crazy. You know, the, the leading thinker on marital success 
where they are now in, in their thinking is when you get married, the best advice that they can give to people is choose the person whose problems you can tolerate. That's the best marital advice out there. Don't worry about the highs so much because those will, a lot of them will even out and after a while you won't even, you'll just take them for granted anyway. But what matters is, can you stick with their garbage? Can you make an informed consent knowing that they're a lazy slob? Are you willing to try to love them anyway? That is the single most important piece of advice for choosing a partner and for choosing to stay with a partner. You're choosing their weak points. You're choosing, like, I mean, the, 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 the really bright people say, you know, there's 20 people who could like their good points. They're charming and funny, but you're choosing to be the one to be okay with their bad points. And I think the same applies for life. Like a lot of people have an easy time with life's gifts. But the stronger among us forgive and make peace with the crap. But you will never do that if you don't notice the gifts. Because you'll just be inundated by crap. One more meditation, please. Let me just ask you one last time to close your eyes for a moment. Close your eyes and take again two slow, deep breaths from deep in your belly. Deep in your belly, slow, full, deep. And then ask yourself, like in the last two or three days, where have I seen kindness in my life? You want to ask yourself, has anybody been kind to me when I run back the tape? This is one of the most important life questions that you can ask yourself. Who was kind? Did anybody say kind things? Listen to me. Have patience. Help around the house. Bring me anything. Where was kindness? You want to find it. 
you absolutely want to find it. Where was kindness? And then you want to pick one instance of that to say thank you to. You want to pick one example of kindness. And you want to literally, in your mind and heart, say thank you. And, and really, from your heart, feel thank you. And then let that go. Just hold the feeling and let that go. Just let it go. And then gently take a breath and allow your eyes to open. So it has to be noticed. Otherwise, you can't be grateful. You have to notice. You have to pay attention. You have to work at it. It's a practice. It's really a practice. All of these are simply things you practice. Quieting your body down in your mind. Being more open to goodness. These are practices. But you have to choose to practice. And it only comes when you make a decision, a real decision to move ahead. Otherwise, you won't practice. Well, you'll continue to practice what you always practiced. We always practice something, always. So you'll continue what you've always practiced until you make a decision to shift your ship, so to speak. Watch the words that come out of your mouth. So one more practice is what kind of story do you want to tell yourself in the world about your life? And this is one that you have 100% control over. Do you want a story of victimhood? Is that your, you know, is that how you want to go out there and say, hey, um, look at me. I was mistreated. Is that, is that the story that you or I think is our best shot at happiness? We control the story 
we don't like that um, power. Most of us rebel against that. We control what comes out of our mouth as speech. It's a lot of responsibility. And at some level, it's very hard to live up to that degree of responsibility. You know, if I yell at somebody, I chose to. It doesn't mean we can't make that choice. I mean, that's the, that's the complete freedom that we have. The issue is um, what kind of story do we want to tell about our life? And there's nothing new in anything I'm saying, but at some level we can decide to tell a victim story. God, I just started out with nothing going my way. And, um, you know, and it's always been that way. I started out with two strikes against me, and now I'm finishing up with two strikes against me. Or I started out with two strikes against me, and I've had a long life learning how to recover from that. That's our, we have so many choices, but that's one of them. And the question is, what kind of story do we want to tell ourselves, which will influence how we relate to the world every day? So if your story is poor me, it hasn't been fair, then you're never going to get over your grudge because you believe that. You're never going to get over your grudge with life because you believe you've been treated unfairly. But if you say, I've had a lot of difficult experiences in my life that I've had to learn from, that's a totally different story. But the, the good news and the bad news is that you or I make the decision. So we suggest something that we call the positive intention story. And it, it can take a couple of different flavors, but the easiest one is, well, what did I need to learn from my difficulty? Like what, what, what did how I handled my, in my life show me my weaknesses? So if I had crappy parents, and then for 20 years I made terrible choices, then it shows me that I really needed to figure out how to handle my experiences so I made better choices. Like that's what I needed. But the positive intention story is all about how it is that I learned about myself 
and what I needed to grow. And, and it doesn't mean that it's easy or a straight line. It can be for 40 years. It took me 40 years to recognize how poorly I was dealing with some of the, the things that had happened to me in life. But at some point, when we make a decision, the story shifts. And the story shifts to, well, this is how I used to deal with it. And now I'm trying to learn better methods of dealing with it. That's how the decision has the biggest impact on us. The decision has a big impact on us because we change our story. And that, that's where the rubber hits the road. We change our story. So our reality shifts. And when we make a decision that we want to forgive or move ahead or get on with things, then we now tell a different story. So the positive intention has two possibilities. One, what I learned about myself and how I needed to grow, or two, how I can get what I needed that the, the obstacle or the grievance made hard. So if I had a terrible relationship and the person was abusive, the positive intention story is, I need to get over this bad relationship so I can get a good one. It's that simple. Or I need to, you know, end the dominance of my bad parents in my head. So maybe I can learn to reparent myself. We need to have a story that works for us. And we need to practice that story a lot. So since we may have 20 years practice of a bad story, the good news is a good story doesn't take that long to substitute. It doesn't take 20 years. It may take a week. That's the really good news. But we have to practice. We have to practice and practice and practice. So I used to say, X, I've learned that Y is a much better story for me. Much better story for me. I, I am gonna stop where I am. It's like 10 minutes to one. Um, I mean, that's enough me yakking at you. Um, if there's a question for me, ask it if you wish. Um, if there's a clarification, uh, I'll do my best. Uh, let me just reiterate what I said. Practice self-regulation, quieting down. Practice gratitude. Practice changing what comes out of your mouth and change your story.
practice self-regulation, practice gratitude. Be careful with what comes out of your mouth and change your story. Those are simple but complex things. You can practice any of them starting this moment. That's the, that's the work that we've done, that why it's so effective. There's no abstract anything. You just practice starting now. Like that, that's the crucial piece. You practice starting now. And you practice whatever you want. The, the, default, the only counter is, since we're always practicing, we are responsible for the fruits of our practice. So we practice unforgiveness. It doesn't happen to us. We make a lot of strong efforts to be bitter. You want to practice things that lead in different directions. You know, and none of this is unusual or new. The Dalai Lama's book, The Art of Happiness, the whole book is predicated on this idea that if you want to be happy, you have to practice things that lead to happiness. If you want to be unhappy, you practice things that lead to unhappiness. Is there, is there any different advice if the hangup is, is more about regret of acts from the past, like a lot of regrets, um, as opposed to necessarily? Yes. Regrets about or, things that you did. Did or didn't do. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things where I think our culture has gone off the rails is not recognizing the wonderful value of regret. It, it's a very important quality of being human. Um, you know, when people ask me about self-forgiveness, I think Herb, Herb and I are doing another one later in the year on self-forgiveness. Um, I think the problem for our culture now is too much self-forgiveness, not too little. <laughs> right. That the world and people in it behave terribly, mm -hmm. absolutely atrociously. And there's not nearly enough regret, guilt, remorse, or any of that stuff. So please don't think regret is a bad thing. What, where it gets to be problematic in a, in a kind of um, abstract thing, it's perfectly okay and useful to regret an action. What's not useful is condemning a self. So you're not a bad person because you do some things that are stupid or unskillful or harmful. But regretting the bad actions is not a terrible thing as long as it doesn't leave you, lead you to decide that you're a bad person or that you can't be trusted or any of those other things, okay? okay. Regret is also not useful for years. Kind of like, like the grief process. I, I can see it in the same dynamic. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's like really good. It can be really good for a couple of months yeah. to really look at yourself and recognize I failed in a piece of a character test. Do I want to do better? 
that's what's important, not regret, but regret often stir, you know, pushes us to that. So then the question is, and, and this is writing a line with 12-step program, if I did some harm, make amends. Yeah. That's more important than regret. Right. Did I apologize? Did I sincerely yeah. apologize? If yeah. I did and I made amends and I've tried to change myself, I'm clean. Yeah. That's what's important. But to minimize regret before it's led to those things, mm-hmm. not good. But I think that's a, another point that you made is be very careful of the vocabulary. And I want to comment the vocabulary of self-talk in your head, because I hear a lot of that self-loathing that comes from people or that regret or the whatever it is, but it's, it's all inside. It's never vo- vocalized. So it's the, about that self-talk and that self-image. It was this is that, um, you know, I had a moment, let's say yesterday with my husband and he said something and it just, I, grasped it right with the old story and the tentacles leading back to my childhood and I leapt all over the comment he made and I was observing let me me interrupt you already if we have a reaction that goes back to our Mm -hmm. childhood right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's an indication that we need to probably apologize to our partners for not having forgiven our own lives and dumping mm-hmm. it on them. Okay. That Fair it's enough. not their fault in any way that we're not healed. Okay. And Even if, if what he did was per- rude. If we're particularly um, open because we carry stuff from our past, we're actually the ones bringing harm, not them. I do want to say too that I really appreciate the graphic nature with which you said, this is the choice you're making, or like, is this how you really want to live to the choice, the decision of how I do want to live. Yeah. And that just in this deciding that I don't want that in me, it's almost like trying to figure out how to be to, as grounded in as accepting I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I would also you know be saying? very, I'd be very careful with the story at your age mm-hmm. that still posits that a lot of it is from childhood. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that a lot of it is from childhood and a lot of it is from how you and I have practiced as adults for decades. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so I was you better have a lot, at a different time. It's but a lot easier to mm-hmm. change yourself and your habits. Mm-hmm. One of them being that I, I didn't start the fire, but I also didn't put it out. Right. And, and you want to be very careful, very careful, not acknowledging how each of us has taken our childhood wounds and then fanned the flames. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it shortens our speeches. I'm just, <laughs> you know, it, like, it like shortens how much we have to say. It's the, the real question is whatever comes up now, how do I most skillfully handle it? 
skillfully. Now that, that like Herb said, that's like, uh. But that's the <laughs> crucial question. Yeah. Yeah. I stop, I pause, I breathe in my belly, which has some kind of a physio psycho connection, I'm guessing, whatever, you know, some kind of a whatever. Stop and I pause and I breathe. And I, you know, what is my, what is my story? You know, the one of the what I'm creating, the one I decided to have. And then. Or even better, what story is it that I want to develop from this moment going forward? Develop in that moment. Good. Yeah. And, good. and you, you can skillful. You can practice with different stories until you find one that's that serves you well. Yeah. Does that just fall into place, or is it something that's meditative? <laughs> yes. Different for everybody. Okay. <laughs> hey, everybody! I gotta go. Yeah. Um, if anybody wants to contact me for anything, I don't know. If you want to speak to me somehow privately. Um, you have my email. Otherwise, Herb, thank you again. As always, I've enjoyed your group and I look forward to seeing you again. You bet, Fred. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. I love love your comment about the buttons. I think Alan is the one who said, I'm the one walking around with a control panel on my chest, right? Like, here you go. It, it was great seeing uh, Dr. Luskin again. And I saw a quote yesterday that was so right on and I wanted to get your input on it. It, it says, uh, lately I've started thinking of the things my parents didn't do perfectly as variables that make me an individual rather than as trauma that makes me a patient. It's not healthy to walk through life identifying oneself as a victim and others as perpetrators. And that was so right on for me. And I, I love what he said about what we name it. And it makes me think that if I can call those things variables, you know, I can choose to frame it as an opportunity rather than something that's persecuted me my whole life. Well, you know, and uh, Dr. Berger, again, quoting him, uh, talked in the context of character defects. He said, how about using the term default responses? And that's what Dr. Luskin was talking about, is the story that we have developed, we condition when we practice it. So the whole point is to reframe it by literally reconditioning ourselves almost forcefully, but without um, uh, uh, violence, um, by um, consciously thinking contrary thoughts consciously feeling contrary feelings, consciously taking contrary actions. And that's not new vocabulary for anybody in a 12-step program. Yeah. Right. I, I love too, he talked about the setbacks and being able to reframe that rather than yeah. something. Right. It's like, oh, <laughs> right. oh, oh, what's going on here? So great. Right. Great to see you guys. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have an idea for a book. I don't know whether I'll ever write it, but it's called uh, Life is a Practice. Yes. Hi, Herb. Thank you so much. Um, Dr. Luskin was amazing. And I'm going to ask what I was going to ask him, which is I had an experience with family recently, let's just say six months ago, and it's about language. And it shifted like, it was like a loss of illusion, like, oh, this is really what's happening. And Mm -hmm. so in terms of language, I now call, because I, 
my father has children from a previous marriage and I, they were, she was sort of my sister, but she's a half sister. Mm. And now in speaking of her, I say my father's daughter, which is to me a clarification of the relationship, but I don't know if that's still like shithead or something or other. No, no. Well, first of all, it didn't have a negative connotation unless you give it one. <laughs> no, it's just a shift in meaning. Like I have, oh, I, I love it. My mom, I have a very difficult time calling her mommy, like her mom. That just right. it too, it doesn't fit for what the relationship means yeah. to me. So that was it. Like, does that my language? Yeah, that was it. It just well, it, it's about it. What does it mean to you? He made a huge point. One of the points I like to make, and that's about intention. Words are critically important. And you notice he was very, Dr. Luskin, very careful with the use of words, making sure that they were clear words, that they weren't vague and poetry words. They were behaviorally oriented words. They were helping to clarify things. And that's, of course, one of the things I, I like to do is be very careful. So I think what you're doing is helping you be clear about your communication and then you'll hear the tone or you'll feel the feelings and you'll know whether or not it's clean. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's fair. That's good. Cause it was a new, it felt very, after my loss of illusion, it felt ugh, like, oh. ew, that's a lie sister. Oh. It connotes too much connection. Yeah. Yeah. That didn't mm -hmm. exist. Yeah. And so my father's daughter makes yeah. me feel like it's clean yes. and less of a lie of the, it, like my it, mom, I, I have a hard time. It sounded very mom. clear and clean when you said it. Okay. And even, even the tone that you used in it, because I pay attention to tone. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, 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 no, it was very clean. Okay, great, yeah. awesome. Thank you so much for this, so yeah. helpful. Thank you. I was struck by, um, the idea, the unmanageability, right? And that if I'm as grounded in the unmanageability of non-forgiveness, and if that as is one of those things that I would have to say, I'm powerless over, yeah. and you know, my life's unmanageable around this because it's here, it's with my husband, it's there with my parents, whatever. And that in that, uh, in moving forward with that idea of the unmanageability and wanting to forgive and wanting to fucking get rid of this shit, mm. that uh, I have to be as, as, as grounded in the idea of that unmanageability as I do in being an alcoholic or, you know. Oh. Yeah, probably more so. Okay. Well, because unmanageability is the warp and woof of our human nature, mm -hmm. addiction happens to be almost an accident of genetics. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's much more pandemic and much more uh, difficult to deal with because it, it's so subtle. And that's why his emphasis, well, and the word I used for his emphasis was unconsciousness. How many times yeah. did he say, pay attention? Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I have the experience where like so in therapy as well the my therapist will say here's the circumstance 
And here's your reaction. Here's the feeling. You're in the feeling of it. And then your reaction. And she wants me to stay still in the feeling of it. Yes. And pause there yes. so that I can act consciously. Right. But I have to be in my body to feel you the feeling. You have to be and... in the feelings and use the feeling as a signal. Mm -hmm. It's telling you something. The, the, yes, it's, it's a biochemical reaction to your perception mm -hmm. that is telling. Mm -hmm. He used the term many times about safety. Yeah. Yeah. That was the other part, too. It's like, yeah. you know, take a deep breath into your belly and that, um, Somehow there's a connection between the slowing down and feeling safe because I react out of not feeling safe. That's the thing, right? So the thing, yeah. I just want to be, I want to get to that where I'm more grounded in the consciousness of the unmanageability here. Yep. And, and it's just a matter of practice then, yeah. And, and from my standpoint, the key practice is step 11. That's Very the improving, well, you know, let's not get wrapped around the vocabulary. Let's just look at what is step 11 <clears throat> from my standpoint. And, and I'll, I'll include the perspective that uh, is the secular perspective from Dr. Luskin's standpoint and mine from just the 12 steps. So it, it's about improving my consciousness. Mm -hmm. We don't have to think about conscious contact with God nice yeah i mean it's good and all of that no i want to be as conscious as possible and when i'm paying attention to the dynamics of my feelings then i can he used the term again self-regulate come to grips with those so what are those feelings telling me well they're telling me that i don't feel safe or that uh my my ego has been wounded well what's that telling me Herb, you're out of alignment again because, in fact, you're not that important. It's hard being a human being. <laughs> I just, no, you know what no, I mean? No, it's not. It's not hard. Okay, it's to not. Be I'm changing being. my language. Wait, right? wait, 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 wait. It's hard to be a conscious human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. No, no. All the news is filled with people who are being all too human, but they're not conscious. Okay. Yeah. No, you have chosen the road less traveled. I know. We talked about the bitch of enlightenment, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I only know that, like, for myself, that there's a, there's a, there's a just discomfort of being in the world, right? Yeah. And, and it's me. It's my discomfort. Yeah. And that it's going to be me that addresses it. Mm -hmm. And. You're part of the process, so thank you. I am stating right now in front of you and the universe and everybody that tomorrow I'm going to tell my sponsor that I'm going to write down my story in 30 words or less hmm. and then write down the one that I want. I'm not going to be the guy whose life was ruined because I fought the law and the law won. Hmm. My big resentment. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be the guy who rose above adversity yeah. and those troubles quenched my steel like a uh, <laughs> fine blade. 
Right. Well, but, but it might be better for you to have a, less of a poetic ambition and more of an authentic <laughs> truth ambition. Well, yes, I just got to, I'm still angry. This is what I discovered the uh, day before yesterday. I was watching right. these hearings that they're having at the Capitol and I got yeah. outside. No. Yeah. For 20 seconds, I was like, you well, know, I'm going to take all those guys. You, you, you know, know the answer to that? Stop watching. I. <laughs> going to take a stance and argue that that might not be the best thing that whether I'm whether I purposely watch this kind of stuff or not it's going to appear in front of my eyes eventually and I can't be reacting like that to these I things. record I record what I think I want to watch so that I can fast forward parts of it that I don't want to watch <laughs> <laughs> I want to be informed, but I don't want to be propagandized. Okay. All right. So well, I, I'm I'm in charge of what I take in. It's true. It's true. But you know, I'm like I've got to get out of step four, which means I have these 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 things that that anger me. Like, and it, frankly, it was just a brief little flash. I was smart enough to go, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing? <laughs> you can't. You're not going to sit around all afternoon going. Rah, 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 right. Well. So. Right. Depends on how you entertain yourself. Well, what I did do was my second favorite musician had this disc for sale on his site. <laughs> nice. I got it and the last cut on it, and I have no idea why he's selling these. He's got yeah. this, and everything else is his yeah. stuff. The last cut is Amazing Grace on bagpipes. And her, oh. oh, I cried. I and want that at my, at my funeral. I want bagpipes and, and amazing grace. That's right. <laughs> so I had a musical epiphany about how oh. music is for humanity. Oh, there you your heart out. You can't send people off the war without John Philip Sousa, right? <laughs> Otherwise, they're not going to go, right? So how important music is to humanity. I'm just going to close on that note. because The comment that the big, one of the biggest changes in my life was changing, saying my daughter instead of my child. Mm -hmm. My daughter is 42 years old. Yeah. And if I say my daughter, I accept her as an adult. If that's I very significant. Child, yeah, no, yeah. I, I love that. I, I, yeah. That's a wonderful insight. Thank you for the words and the thought. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, that's all. Thanks. All right. A pleasure for Dr. Luskin and for you to review the uh, forgiveness steps. I, I have changed my story. Oh, several months ago, I read the book and went through it. And um, but this was really a good refreshing. Oh, it was mm -hmm. for me because even though I changed my story, um, the ends were getting loose now. So I have to go back and um, with positive intention and re, uh, revive it because incrementally um, I, run into, um, I run into this problem and, um, I, and the story wasn't as firm in my head. In other words, this person's still renting space in my head. I like the way he put that. And um, so now I, 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 as we were going through, I really liked the idea where I will have positive intention. Um, I will look at this and get up 
in the morning and and decide that this is, I will make a decision to have a healthy, positive relationship with my story and the way I perceive it. So thanks. Yeah. And, and, and just for today, I can, I can now write a new chapter in my story and I can create the theme and the attitude. That's yeah. really good. I like it. Yeah. I was wondering where the intersection of the forgiveness and like when you're dealing with a child and I have a sponsee and I have myself too of um that's in the throes of an addiction um and heavily in the throes of the addiction uh, adult child you know how does the forgiveness or changing the story work with that with a child that just it makes you so sad and everything else but um What's the story? Wait, wait, wait. What's the story? The, uh, a child that's in addiction. And Are we talking about a child literally no. under 18 years old? No, an adult. So we're talking about an adult with addiction. An adult adult daughter or adult son, yes. With, the, with an addiction, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the story is... This person has, and yes, of course, you can be sad about it, but it is what is, isn't it? And you know that from your own addiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell me, I don't, maybe what is the question? I guess I, I, I mean, I find that um, with my sponsee, we keep going back to, you know, that involvement and that, that, um, and I'm trying to put some of the, her, uh, some of uh, Fred's, Luskin's um, things to it of, of put a uh, better thought in your mind and put a better, you know, that kind of thing. And it, are you talking about um, a person that you sponsor that has a, an adult? child and and mm -hmm. you've recommended they go to Al-Anon and participate actively in Al-Anon which they do yes wonderful good but you still stay so much in that mess that is your child's you know they reach out they do all this stuff oh, and nobody says it's going to be easy okay they put it in I mean I I'm not sure what I would do. Was I in the same situation? So I don't want to be glib about it, but isn't that what they call tough love and, mm -hmm. and detachment with love? Mm -hmm. As I say, I'm not coming from experience. I'm coming from repeating what I hear from other people's experience. And it sounds horrible to me. I can't imagine how I would you know, deal with it because I don't have to deal with it. But those are the words that people use and they're... 20-year-old daughter is on the front porch after three years of prostituting herself and heroin use, and she's saying, Mom, 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 I'm hungry, and I have no place to live, and I'm going to die if you don't let me in. And the mother says, you know where to go, and doesn't open the door. I'm talking about a live situation that I was part of. Mm -hmm. Now, the daughter did go and find the Salvation Army and find recovery, 
but the mother took the risk that the daughter would go away and die. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I had another mother relate this. She was in Al-Anon. She took the recommendation. She did the steps. She did all the work with therapy, et cetera. And her daughter called him. And this was like the 200th time the daughter had called um, a 30 year old daughter. And she said, mom, I'm really going to commit suicide. And she said, Martha, I love you very much and I will miss you. And she hung up. How's that? Mm. <laughs> that startled me. I'll tell you that. Yeah. She didn't commit suicide, by the way. She was manipulating. But, you, you, but we never know. Mm -mm. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. That's the, that's the, the, and I just was trying to connect what I heard today with how you get through something like this. Yeah. 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 I'm sure each person gets through it in a little bit different way. Yep. I'm very confident. And I know people who have said, well, those are my children and I am going to take care of them. And in the cases that where they're talking to me, it did work out for them where they, quote, enabled them for a while till they got some traction and then they did get some traction. But of course, I'm hearing the success story, not the failure story. Yeah. No, this is a failure story. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. There's no formula here. There's no formula, but there's lots of experience in Al Anon. And, yeah, and that's it does that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Well, I'm not sure it's helpful because it's not definite. It's not a formula. Uh, yeah. and, and there isn't one. Yeah. Thank you. There are principles. Yeah, there are principles. Really great today. And um, I just wanted to bring up that you and I were talking recently and you asked me how I was and I said, well, I'm really good, but I always notice that my mind goes somewhere negative. I, you know, like I, it'll ferret out one little thing that like something with my kids usually that I wish I'd done or that they weren't doing oh, properly. The, the regret thing again. Yeah. Yeah. And you said, well, you can change that. You could watch your mind do going there and you can change the fact that the fact that I'm focusing on the one little thing that's not going as I would like it to go in my life right now. And that I, I started practicing that um, in the last few weeks, noticing that my mind would go. We had a great weekend over one of my kids' graduation, and there was like one little thing that didn't go right. I was looping on that, and I thought, oh, look how I do that. I can change that. I can, ch I can choose to focus on the things that went well and all the good. And I've been practicing that. And then it's interesting that that's what a lot what Dr. Luskin was talking okay, about today. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the forgiveness realm, but, but as, what I learned from you is that it can be in all areas of, yes, of yes. Mm -hmm. it's really great. So thank you for that. Yeah. One of my good friends has a motto that he uses. So I, I, I talk about it and it's pay attention. That's what Dr. Mm -hmm. Luskin was talking about. Pay attention. This is about consciousness. When mm -hmm. you are aware of something, you can allow it to be, or you can change it. If you're not aware of it, you can't change it. You're just sucked into the hole of negativity. But if you're aware of it, you can stay there if you enjoy it. <laughs> or you can make a choice like somebody was saying earlier. It's like, 
this that's radical responsibility yeah and i like how he said if we don't if we if we don't change it like we're comfortable in the old behavior yeah. we're actually practicing and reinforcing that exactly yeah. oh yeah. yeah 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 no i i i agree this was a wonderful uh, combination with dr luskin he's got a very special gift of communicating very simply and credibly mm -hmm. of course he's obviously very skilled and knowledgeable mm -hmm. so thanks so much thank you herb all right, team, I think we're going to wrap it with that summary, a daily practice. Oh, my goodness. Dr. Luskin and I did not talk in, pre in preparation for this. Forgiveness is a daily practice, a commitment to intentional consciousness, a gratitude list for growth in positivity. Create a list and add one thing, only one thing every day. But the rule is that you don't get to add anything that's already on the list. Now, that will be easy for the first 30 to 60 days, but then it'll become quite challenging. You'll have to be very creative. What am I grateful for today that isn't already on the list? And the whole point of that, of course, is to expand your consciousness positively. And then, of course, prayer, step 11, meditation reduces defects, increases virtues, and gives us that consciousness that we're looking for, for guidance, whoops, for guidance and power. Listen to step 11, praying only for the knowledge of God's will, guidance, and the power to do it, because we know based on our Acquaintance with unmanageability, more often than not, we know better, but we don't do better. So I not only need to know better because I know that I don't know. I have a blind spot. I mean, today I have that strange mental blind spot, not with regard to obsession, but with regard to reality. And I need guidance and therefore I'm committed to a daily practice in the morning of knowing better and then hopefully the power during the day to do better. Do a radar sweep at night in the step 11 meditation inventory just to see if there's something I can course correct. Step 10, during the day disturbed, step 11 at night, all about course correction. He talked about so gentle in terms of the practice part of that. And then, of course, step 12, helpful actions. I've dropped the word service. It's too sophisticated. Being helpful, kindness, both consciousness and compassion, the two primary principles of Buddhism, consciousness, wisdom, action, kindness, compassion. But you know, if you've had any exposure to me at all, that I believe sponsorship in some form, accountability is the most important. For all of the commitments that you make, tell somebody about it and report in once a week, once a month, whatever you decide with that person. My sense is accountability is the single most important moving part of all of the program. All of the parts are important. But if you do accountability, you will do all of the program.
a forgiving person has no past, we're released. An unforgiving person has no future. We're not released. Please join me in the serenity prayer, that prayer of alignment with reality. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Well, thank you for hanging in there. We had a really good group. And of course, you're the mad dog. You stayed right to the end. 